Well, thanks for coming this morning as we are continuing to study church history. We've made it now through the Reformation, we've made it through the Enlightenment, and we're in a period where uh, it probably looks a lot more uh, familiar. But at the same time, our focus has kind of moved from a much more global scale to a a more limited perspective uh, as we're looking at things that are much more specifically uh, American, as we've looked at uh, the, the various revivals. Uh, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and uh, and so forth. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this movement called theological liberalism. If uh, you weren't here for that or you haven't listened to that audio, you, you need to do so because a lot of what we're going to talk about today is dependent upon having an understanding of theological liberalism. And today's topic goes hand in hand with it uh, because we're talking about fundamentalism, all right? So what do you think about when you think of the word fundamentalism? Does that word generally have positive or negative connotations for you? Raise your hand if it's uh, positive. You think of fundamentalism, you think that's a positive thing. What about negative? You think of that as a negative thing. Right? For most of us, I think it has this negative sort of com- uh, connotation. That's not the, uh, true for all of us, but for most of us it does, because that's the way that culture has uh, tended to use uh, the word. That's not only the case with Christianity. Think about whenever there is some sort of a uh, terroristic attack and uh, there's some sort of Middle Eastern ties, that is said to be carried out by whom? It's, it's carried out by Islamic fundamentalists, all right? And so uh, the way that we use the word fundamentalist, fundamentalism, and so forth, whether it's applied to Christianity or to other religions today, is seen to be this negative thing. That's also the true, uh, true with Hindu fundamentalists or, or whatever it, uh, it might uh, be. So we tend to think of fundamentalism as a bad thing, and that's certainly true of this movement called Christian fundamentalism, which isn't very fun, as, uh, as George Marsden uh, remarks. A fundamentalist is an evangelical who is angry about something. Angry about what? Well, to answer that question, we need to ask and uh, consider a few other questions. First, what is fundamentalism? We're going to talk about that. Second, what is fundamentalism reacting to? Third, what were the phases of fundamentalism? Fourth, what are the pros? Fifth, what are the cons? And then finally, what are some of the lasting effects of the fundamentalist movement? So let's start with what is Fundamentalism, all right? Defining any sort of uh, really broad, long-lasting movement is, uh, is really challenging. For, for, for instance, if you were to identify a, uh, a Democrat from a Republican uh, and, uh, and you were to talk about what are those major differences, those differences would be much different today than if you were describing the differences 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, and uh, so this is certainly true of fundamentalism as as well. Depending on who you ask, every single person in this room could be considered a fundamentalist or could not be considered a fundamentalist, all right? Most of that difficulty arises from the fact that this movement that we call fundamentalism isn't monolithic. There are these distinct stages, uh, there are these phases, and there's definite changes that take place uh, in the movement over time. Someone might be considered a fundamentalist in the 1920s, not change a single thing about themselves, and yet no longer be considered one by the 1940s. So what is meant by the term fundamentalist when it was originally coined in the early 20th century is not at all what is meant by the term in the early 21st century. Right? The, connotation, or the denotation may be the same, but at least the connotation is uh, radically uh, different. And we'll talk about that as we, we discuss these various phases that you see uh, to the movement. And so I think the following summary is uh, helpful. 
by a historian named John Fay. He says, the story of uh, uh, American fundamentalism is the story of those 19th century American mainstream Protestants and their heirs who rose to defend traditional evangelical doctrine in light of cultural, intellectual, and ecclesiastical change in American society and religion. So in that sort of summary, that sort of definition, if you will, you see a couple of things. First, you see that there is this desire to defend traditional orthodox doctrine. That's the goal of fundamentalism. It's very much a defensive movement, and along with that, therefore, uh, it's reactionary. It's a reactionary movement, all right? Notice, it's an attempt to defend traditional doctrine in light of, quote, cultural, intellectual, and ecclesiastical change in American society and religion. So let's talk about those changing by, uh, changes by talking about what fundamentalism is reacting to. If you want one word to kind of summarize what fundamentalism is reacting to, what's defending against, that word would be modernism. Modernism. In fact, George Marsden defines fundamentalism as militantly anti-modernist Protestant evangelicalism. So what is modernism? Well, it's the changing worldview that develops in Western culture after the Enlightenment and particularly in the late 19th and early 20th century. So think of modernism as this massive river that's flowing through culture and it's being fed by a few streams. The first of those streams is theological liberalism. Again, that's going to be really important for you to understand. Uh, If you weren't here for that uh, lecture, go back and listen to that. So let's back up a bit. Prior to the Enlightenment... Prior to the Enlightenment, for all of Western culture's history, uh, Western culture looked to various sources uh, for authority. They had revelation, they had tradition, they had reason, and they had experience. So think of each of those as a, a source of light, if you will. So revelation is like the sun, tradition is like this string of lights, Reason is like a candle. Experience is like a little glow stick that you take to a rave or something like that. What happens in the Enlightenment is that uh, some of those lights are extinguished. We no longer trust revelation, and and so we destroy the sun. We no longer trust tradition, so we turn off the string of light. As a result, what's left? Reason and experience. Now, what did those things have in common? Well, they're both internal In other words, the Enlightenment project uh, in general and modernity in uh, particular really rests on this idea of overturning all authority outside of the self. It isn't that external authority is rejected entirely, but rather that it's subjugated to the self. Self becomes the Supreme Court. Tradition, revelation, all those kinds of things thus become subjugated to the self but I get to decide what's true, what's true for me, and, uh, and so forth. There is no higher court of appeal than the self after, uh, after the Enlightenment, and, uh, and uh, that's kind of the, the assumption of liberal theology. So you have guys like Adolf von Harnack and Friedrich Schleiermacher and Albrecht uh, Ritschel, and they're all trying to retain the language of Christianity, but they kind of discard or revise the, uh, the meaning of the concepts behind that terminology. As, uh, as Richard uh, Niebuhr commented, uh, liberalism presents the idea that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Or as a church historian Bruce Shelley writes, liberalism promotes a progressive ethical vision derived from the Christian message while denying Christianity's traditional understanding of doctrine. 
Notice what is important in liberalism is more ethics, not doctrine. It's about uh, much more about behavior than it is beliefs. Right? Liberal theology retains some of the fruit of Christianity, but it denies all of the foundation, all of the, the foundational truths. So what liberalism is doing is saying our faith can't rest on these external authorities like revelation, like the Bible, and things like tradition. All right? It also has to pass the litmus test of the self, of reason, my reason, my experience. And when that happens, there is this dilution of doctrine that takes place. There is this reductionism that takes place in theology, especially as it relates to the various distinctions that you see in Scripture. The differences between God and man are downplayed, as is the distinction between Christ and other men. Christ becomes this sort of just superman, but he's just a man nonetheless. Or the distinctions between men and women, this is why feminism takes root in, uh, in this period of time. Uh, the distinctions between humans and animals, this is why evolution becomes a thing in this time. The, the distinction between Christianity and other religions. Uh, so there's this attempt to minimize these distinctions, and there's also this attempt to move beyond the miraculous. The miraculous is kind of revised uh, to, to, to be seen as sort of mythical hyperbole. Jesus uh, wasn't really God. He simply had the ultimate God consciousness. He didn't really walk on water. Instead, there must have been some sort of invisible jetty or something that he walked on. And so as the story was told over the years by the disciples, it was embellished over time. You know how preachers do. In other words, anything supernatural that you read in the Bible must be reinterpreted through these naturalistic lenses. This is part of the Enlightenment Project. We retain the stories but we simply rein, uh, reinterpret them through our modern, enlightened views. So according to liberalism, the goal is not to reject the Bible, but rather to revise our views of it. All right? The idea is, is that if Christianity is going to, be, uh, to survive, it has to adapt. The historic Orthodox faith is now seen as something that's antiquated. It's archaic. So if the, the Christian faith must kind of self-consciously uh, adjust to the norms defining modern culture or it's going to be rend, uh, rendered irrelevant and pass away into oblivion. So that's one stream. You have this massive theological liberalism that's taking root in our culture. You cannot understand fundamentalism without understanding liberalism and how dangerous that movement is to Christianity. A second stream to modernity is uh, uh, evolution. Now, evolution doesn't just simply come out of nowhere. It's not like Big Bang or something like that. Darwin doesn't simply appear out of a vacuum. Rather, there are these forebearers who kind of pave the way for Darwin to come forth. For example, nearly 25 years before Darwin was even born, there was a man named James Hunter. In 1785, James Hunter attributed the Earth's development to natural rather than supernatural causes. He says the earth didn't develop uh, by uh, God speaking it uh, into existence. There were these natural causes. So you see the, the, the enlightenment assumptions of naturalism and the rejection of supernaturalism. Evolution depends on the rejection of supernatural immediate uh, creation. So Hunter's theories kind of paved the way for Darwinism. Then in 1830, a guy named Sir Charles Lyell, or Lyell published a book called Principles of Geology, which claimed that the earth developed not quickly, but over a vast period of time. And this in itself, in and of itself, wasn't really the problem. 
You can hold to an old earth or a young earth view of, of creation. You can still trust in the, the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Some Christians think that uh, the days of Genesis are literal 24-hour periods. Some people think they're the longer periods of time. Both of those are within the boundaries of Christianity. Uh, this is not the time to debate that. The problem wasn't that all of a sudden there was this idea that it could have developed over long periods of time. The problem uh, was that this provides the necessary conditions for Darwin's theories to arise. Because the theory of evolution demands the idea of this longer period of time uh, to take place. The historic geological theory of a young earth simply didn't allow enough time for the evolutionary model. Uh, So that was 1830. And then nearly 30 years later in 1859, Darwin published uh, his book titled On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. All right? If he wrote that book today, he would have gotten canceled. And he should, because Darwin was an actual racist. All right? Evolution for him explained why some races were more superior uh, than others. About a decade later, Darwin would more fully apply the theory of evolution to mankind in uh, his book called The Descent of Man in which he would make the now famous claim that man descended from monkey-like creatures. Right? Look at that picture of Darwin. Looks like Gandalf the Grey. So that's the second stream. First stream, theological modernism or theological liberalism. Second stream is, uh, is evolution that's taking root in uh, the academic world uh, and so forth. Uh, Darwinism is growing in prominence. Not only does it upend the traditional a- a view of the age of the earth, uh, again, that's not a problem in and of itself, but it also does this, which is more problematic. It removes the idea of a unique creation of Adam and Eve, and thus it removes the idea of the u- unity of humanity and the universality of the fall. So that's a really big deal to Christian theology. As a Christian, you can hold to an older earth or a younger earth. Uh, uh, you can even hold to what is called microevolution, which is evolution within the species. There's adaptation over time. We get bigger or stronger or whatever that might be. But when you have to, you have to give away a whole lot of other important uh, related doctrines to believe in Darwinian macroevolution, that is evolution from one species uh, to another, that compromises your anthropology, your martiology, doctrine of sin, and your soteriology, doctrine of salvation. But by the late 19th, early 20th century, Darwinism is all the rage. Everyone loves evolution. So that's the second factor that kind of provides the fuel for the fires of fundamentalism. A third factor is, uh, is the fact that there was this changing culture. Now remember the historical context. In the 1740s, there was an event called the Great Awakening, But then there's an American Revolution. Then there's attempts to kind of push the boundaries, explore the frontier by moving out west. As a result, we've talked about before that uh, that Americans in the the late uh, 18th century are distracted. They are disinterested in religions. There's this general decline in Christianity. But then, lo and behold, there is this second Great Awakening, which, as we talked about, wasn't all that great. There were some benefits, but in general, it promotes this really theologically anemic, anti-intellectual version of the gospel. Meanwhile, while this is taking place, there's this massive immigration into the country. For the first uh, couple hundred years, nearly all the immigration to the New World was Protestant. Right? Think of the, the Puritans, the Pilgrims, uh, and so forth. Thus, around the time of the Revolutionary War, Catholics were only about 1% of the population. 
1% of the population around the time of the Revolutionary War. Less than 100 years later, around the time of the Civil War, Catholics were the largest religious body in the U.S. And that wasn't the case because of revivalism. That wasn't the case because of evangelism and missions. It was the case because of immigration and because of higher birth rates among Catholics. So what you see in the mid to late 19th century is kind of this disestablishment of American Protestantism. Then in 1893, the World Parliament of Religions comes to Chicago, and America kind of gets this firsthand taste of these non-Christian religions as well, Buddhism and Hinduism and, and Islam and so forth. So by the late 19th century, most of the institutions of higher learning had drifted towards liberalism. Most of academia had swallowed the assumptions of Darwinism. And the historic Protestant assumptions were no longer the dominant theological view in the country. In other words, those who had traditionally held power, those who had traditionally held influence within American culture, suddenly no longer did. Some people celebrated those changes, others did not. And many of those who didn't celebrate those changes fought back, and that fighting back is fundamentalism. That's the response to modernism. So let's talk about the rise and fall of fundamentalism. Historian John Fay, who I uh, quoted from earlier, he's noted four phases of the fundamentalist movement. There's an Irenic phase from uh, roughly the 1890s to uh, almost 1920. There's a militant phase from 1920 through 1936. There's a divisive phase from 1941 to 1960. There's a separatist phase from 1960 to the, uh, the present. Let's begin with the Irenic phrase. All right? What does Irenic mean? Anybody know? Peaceful. All right, so Irenic is from the Greek word Irene, which means peace. So this is a stage of fundamentalism that's noted for this peaceful attempt to, to respond to modernism. It isn't marked by uh, the aggressive antagonism or fighting that you'll see later. As mentioned before, 1893, the World Parliament of Religions comes to America. Two years later, 1895, at the Niagara Bible Conference, a group of pastors get together, and they discuss these troubling times. And in particular, they discuss the problem of churches and seminaries embracing theological liberalism, these heterodox, heretical views of Christ uh, and God and the gospel and so forth. And in response, they produced a five-point creed, five, quote, fundamentals for churches and seminaries to require affirmation of, right? You've heard of the five points of Calvinism before? Summarized as tulip, total depravity, um, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Well, these are the five points of fundamentalism. Number one, the bodily return of Christ. Number two, inerrancy of Scripture. Number three, resurrection of Christ. Number four, the deity and virgin birth of Christ. And then number five, substitutionary atonement. By the way, you'll never see these five points in this order. I rearranged them to make an acronym, all right? All right. What acronym is that? The five points of tulip of Calvinism is tulip. The five points of fundamentalism is birds. I just thought that was kind of funny. All right. As a bird needs wings to fly, so Christianity needs these five doctrines to flourish. That's kind of the idea. Now, why they don't have things like the Trinity in there, I don't know, but they didn't. They had those five, and those become a litmus test to assess orthodoxy. <clears throat> Churches use them. Denominations use them. Some seminaries use them. Not everyone, though, used them, and liberalism didn't die as it was uh, hoped that it would. Then, starting in 1910, 
the first of a handful of booklets were published under the title, The Fundamentals, A Testimony to the Truth. A dozen or so booklets, I think it was actually a dozen, 12 booklets were published over the next few years, and those contained about 100 articles total defending basic doctrines that, quote, new theology, that's uh, liberalism, was questioning. Those are things like the Bible is the inspired word of God, or Jesus is God in the flesh, or the virgin birth, or Christ's unique sinless life, or his resurrection, or whatever it might be, Uh, and uh, the... uh, the goal uh, or the, the, the net that was spread for this effort was far and wide. It was really cooperative amongst various different theological perspectives. It wasn't just the Baptists who were writing these books or just the Presbyterians or whatever it might be. You had Presbyterians like James Orr, B.B. Warfield. They wrote articles, but so did Anglicans uh, like the Bishop H.C.G. Uh, Mool and uh, Dispensationalists like C.I. Schofield. The, ev- uh, the evangelist R.A. Torrey, the Southern Baptist scholar E.Y. Uh, Mullins. So it was this intra-denominational thing. There were covenantal theologians and dispensationalists. There were Arminians and Calvinists. There were Paedo-Baptists and Credo-Baptists. All right? The differences between Paedo-Baptism and Credo-Baptism were important, but in times of war, we kind of unite against a common enemy. All right? Think of even the, uh, the, the Second World War, right? The U.S., the USSR, they're not best friends, but they're united in this common uh, effort against the threat of Nazism. And so that's kind of what happens in this, uh, this stage of fundamentalism, that the people are willing to put aside their secondary, tertiary sort of things in order to fight for the uh, fundamentals, what was foundational. By the way, check out the picture, one of those booklets. I don't know if you can uh, read it, but uh, kind of in the middle there it says, Compliments of Two Christian Laymen. All right, those laymen were Lyman and Milton Stewart. Lyman was the, uh, the millionaire founder of Union Oil, as well as a Presbyterian who was concerned about the state of theology at the time. So he and his brother just funded the project uh, anonymously. And that's the first phase. You see this general recognition. There is a problem that's presented by modernity, and there is this attempt to address that problem through this highly cooperative uh, effort marked by uh, somewhat measured response. And that begins to shift a bit in the second phase, which is called a militant phase. This is where uh, actual controversy begins to erupt, where these sides are clearly drawn. All right, Knowing exactly when to begin this period is a bit difficult, but we'll start with when the term fundamentalist is actually first coined. All right, You see, fundamentals that language is used in the first phase, but the word fundamentalist or fundamentalism is first coined here. It was first uh, used by a guy named Curtis Lee Laws in uh, 1920, and he wrote, We here and now move that a new word be adopted to describe the men among us who insist that the landmarks shall not be removed. Conservatives is too closely allied, uh, allied with reactionary forces in all walks of life. Premillennialist is too closely uh, uh, allied with a single doctrine and not sufficiently inclusive. Landmarks has a historical disadvantage and connotes a particular group of radical conservatives. We suggest that those who, who still cling to the great fundamentals and who mean to do battle royale for the great fundamentals shall be called fundamentalists. By that name, the editor of the Watchman Examiner, that's who he was, is willing to be called. It will be understood, therefore, when he uses the word, it will be in compliment and not in disparagement. 
By the way, notice the reference to premillennialist in there. What he means by that is dispensationalist. If you don't know what dispensationalism is, go back and listen to some of our theological quippings on the topic. But here's a kind of a summary uh, uh, summation uh, of it. Dispensationalism is this evangelical theological system that uh, attempts to address issues concerning the biblical covenants, Israel, the church, and end times. If you've ever heard of the book Left Behind, the, the, the series Left Behind, or uh, the Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, that's dispensationalism. That's where you get ideas like the pre-trib rapture and so forth. Dispensationalism, by the way, didn't even exist until the late 19th century, around the exact same time as the Niagara Bible Conference was coming up with the fundamentals. And that's kind of fitting that fundamentalism and dispensationalism are kind of founded at the same time because there's this interesting overlap between dispensationalism and fundamentalism because dispensationalism was kind of the one theological system, the one theological stream of thought that really never went over to the dark side of liberalism. Some Baptists remained conservative. Others uh, went towards liberalism. All right, the same with Presbyterians, same with Methodists, and so forth, but not dispensationalism. In fact, there was actually a period uh, of time in the mid-20th century in which it seemed like your only two options were to either be liberal or dispensational. All right, now, those weren't the only two options, but it seemed like that in a lot of American culture. I'm not dispensational. Uh, dispensational. In fact, I think original dispensationalism is really dangerous, but that's one thing that's really commendable about the system. It never kind of bent to the will of theological liberalism. Back to the timeline, though. 1920, Cody Lee Laws, uh, Curtis Lee Laws, sorry, Cody Lee, his sax brother, Curtis Lee Laws, <laughs> coins the term fundamentalism as a, quote, protest against rationalistic interpretation of Christianity, which seeks to discredit supernaturalism. Now, what has just happened in the world a few years prior to 1920? Yeah, there's this huge world war, right? World War I. Who started World War I? Who starts all the world wars? Germany, right? And what else came from Germany? Well, a lot of good things. The Reformation, the printing press, the automobile, blue jeans, Levi Strauss and so forth. But also a lot of bad things come from Germany, right? Especially a few guys named Adolf von Harnack, Friedrich Schleiermacher, and Albert Ritschel, who were the leading names in theological liberalism. And uh, in Germany, that's called uh, German higher criticism. So America is kind of weary in this period of time of all things German. Because they just started a war that killed dozens of millions of people. And now America is seeing the results, seeing this German philosophical, theological ideas permeate their institutions. And that connection between German theology and the world war begins to galvanize this more serious response in the American public. As John Fay writes, Many conservative uh, evangelicals began to associate the destructive character of the German war machine with the destructive nature of liberal theology upon traditional orthodoxy. The result was a belligerent mentality that would spread from the military campaigns of Europe to the ecclesiastical confrontations of the 1920. America was engaged in a world war, and the attitude and vocabulary associated with that war was transferred to the churches. One of the most prominent voices during this time is a man named J. Gresham Machen. He's a New Testament scholar at Princeton who was concerned about this increasingly secular perspective 
uh, of all institutions, all institutions of higher learning in, uh, in America, uh, but in particular his school at Princeton. So he eventually leaves Princeton and he uh, helps establish Westminster Theological Seminary in 1929. But first he wrote this highly influential book called Christianity and Liberalism in 1923. To Machen and to other fundamentalists of the time, liberalism was, it wasn't just a different style of theology. It represents this entirely different religion. Right? It had entirely different views of God. Entirely different views of Christ, of Scripture, of the atonement, of justice, etc. So Machen's book set out to kind of define the historic biblical orthodox boundaries on these fundamentals to express the severity of compromise. And, uh, and so that was his uh, goal. Unfortunately, just a couple of years after Machen's book was published, Something occurred which would forever mar the movement of fundamentalism and the name fundamentalist. All right, it all started in Tennessee, which passed a law called the Butler Act. Anyone know what the Butler Act did? It made it unlawful for any state-funded school to teach something. What? Evolution, Darwinian evolution. And a teacher named John Scopes was accused of breaking the law. You might have heard of the Scopes trial or the Scopes monkey trial. By the way, the book that uh, Scopes used was George William Hunter's Civic Biology. As you can guess, it endorsed Darwinian the, uh, uh, evolution. In fact, it actually took Darwini- uh, Darwinism to its logical implication, as the book also championed eugenics, white supremacy. It argued against people with disabilities, and it argued against giving charity to the inferior. Now, why would it argue for those things? What's one of the principles of Darwinism? Natural, uh, yeah, survival of the fittest, right? So it's not a good book, right? If you're homeschooling your kids and you're looking for a book on, uh, on biology, I highly unrecommend George William Hunter. So there's going to be a trial, right? This guy is arrested and uh, he's, uh, there's going to be a trial. In a sense, Christianity is on trial. In a sense, God is on trial. And who is going to defend God? Well, enter William Jennings Bryan. Three-time Democratic presidential nominee, former Secretary of State, who had resigned when he thought that Woodrow Wilson was pushing the country too hard into war with Germany. All right? Since resigning, he had devoted himself to promoting a vision of American morality. So he saw this opportunity in the Scopes case, and so he served as one of the prosecutors. He actually wasn't the main prosecutor, but he was one of the prosecutors. And his main concern with evolution wasn't biblical or theological. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a theologian. His main concern with evolution was moral. He thought that Darwinian evolution undercut belief in God. And in his mind, belief in God was necessary for morality. And morality was necessary for the social fabric. So again, he was not a theologian. He's not entering into this trial as a pastor or theologian. He's entering as a politician. So he took the case to, as, uh, as Mark Knoll writes, to preserve the rights of common citizens against the imperialism of the elite and the values of traditional America against the encroaching, uh, encroaching naturalism of an alien moral system. Right? His opponent was a guy named Clarence Darrow, who was a famous uh, defense lawyer, and he defended Mr. Scopes. And guess who won the trial? Actually, the prosecution won, all right? William Jennings Bryan. Scopes was actually fined a minimal amount. That outcome was actually the desired goal. Darrow and Scopes both wanted Scopes to lose, 
uh, and uh, he didn't want to win. He wanted to lose so that he could appeal all the way to the Supreme Court, at least the Tennessee Supreme Court, and he did, and the verdict was eventually overturned. So uh, William Jennings Bryan won the battle, but Darrow actually wins the war. How so? By making Bryan in particular, and indeed fundamentalists in general, look like backwoods, ignorant buffoons. The social result was the entire idea of creationism all of a sudden seems silly in American society. And that image was only uh, amplified. Uh, You might have heard of the play or the Academy Award-winning, or nominated at least, movie Inherit the Wind, which fictionalized the trial, caricatured Brian, sullied the name of fundamentalism. As an interesting historical fact, William Jennings Bryan died just five days after the trial. Now, during this time, uh, the proponents of modernism began to strike back. All right? there is, they seize upon the idea that there is a weakness in fundamentalism, and that is that they, it seems kind of backwoods and ignorant and so forth uh, to society. So proponents begin to strike back. Two of the most famous of the modernists were uh, Baptist minister Harry Emerson Fosdick, and University of Chicago professor Shiler Matthews, all right? Fosdick was probably the best-known preacher in America between the time of D.L. Moody and Billy Graham. So in that period in the early 20th century, he kind of looks like a cross between David Duchovny from the X-Files and Joel Osteen, I think. In his sermon, titled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win?, he argued that Christianity did not need the intolerance of the fundamentalists, but rather the tolerance of diverse belief practiced by enlightened modernists. In his mind, modernism or theological liberalism was the only way to be, quote, both an intelligent modern and a serious Christian. All right, so that was uh, um, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Shiler Matthews, meanwhile, he argued that historic theology was irrelevant to the needs of modern culture. It's answering questions, but it's answering all the wrong Questions. For example, the world needs new control of nature and society is told that the Bible is verbally inerrant. It needs a means of composing class strife and is told to believe in substitutionary atonement. It needs faith in the divine presence in human affairs and is told it must accept the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Right? To quote the great philosopher Alanis Morissette, it's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. Right? Unfortunately, The views of Fosdick and Matthews prevailed, partly due to the public sentiments following the Scopes trial, partly due to the fact that most of the American elite had already been discipled into modernity. All of the the, uh, places, the, the institutions of higher learning had already bought into this. That said, many Christians weren't convinced by either fundamentalism or modernism. There was a group of Christians that instead wanted to be thought of as inclusivists. They were kind of theological moderates who preferred this peaceful coexistence to militant theological battle that was being uh, raged on either side. The result for them was that they would downplay their theology, all right? Their goal was to remain neutral, but by downplaying their theology, the inclusivists unintentionally sided with the modernists. Fundamentalists said theology is this hill we must die on and fight over. Uh, modernists said theology isn't that important. There are other hills that we should die on and fight on. The inclusivist says, why can't we all just get along? And in doing so, they suggested that the fundamentalists were wrong. As a result of all of these factors, modernists gained control of most denominational hierarchies 
and most seminaries. All right, so in this period of time, most of the uh, the seminaries, most of the denominations, and so forth, were leaning uh, heavily towards liberalism. So many conservatives simply left those institutions and started their own. We've already mentioned J. Gresham Machen started Westminster Theological Seminary as a conservative alternative to Princeton. Then in uh, 1936, Presbyterian dissidents led by Machen formed an alternative denomination that is the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. What's really interesting, one year later, that denomination, this new denomination that was uh, formed to combat liberalism and to be a bastion of conservatism, that denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, split for reasons that will mark the third phase. In particular, the Orthodox Presbyterian domination said, we just want to fight for conservative theology. But there was another group within that split out of that called the Bible Presbyterian Church, and they wanted to kind of wed conservative theology with American morality, and uh, especially as it relates to things like alcohol, which was on everyone's mind because it was just a few years after prohibition was uh, repealed. By the way, I found this humorous description of prohibition while studying. Uh, this is by Bruce Shelley. He said, Prohibition was the austere weapon of a pack of blue-nosed Puritans who found life a joyless thing and were determined that no one else should be allowed to distill a drop of pleasure from it. All right? So you see, in the late 30s, fundamentalism is fracturing. Not on theological grounds. It's a uh, kind of a unified movement on that uh, ground but on these other tertiary issues like moralism and so forth. And you see that division really exemplified in the third phase of the movement, which is a divisive phase from roughly the 40s to uh, the beginning of 1960. It's in this third phase where you see this massive split in fundamentalism and these two approaches that emerge. You have fundamentalism on one hand, and then you have evangelicalism on the other. Theologically, they believed almost the exact same things, but the difference was their approach to culture. Remember, Marsden had, uh, had written that a fundamentalist is an evangelical who is angry about something. In this phase, you see that that anger is directed not only towards modernism, theological liberalism and evolution and so forth. It's also directed toward anything or anyone that they thought were compromising or capitulating culturally, including other conservative Christians. So in September 1941, the American Council of Christian Churches was founded for the purpose of continuing the anti-modernist campaign. Other fundamentalists, though, realized that the struggles of the previous decade had kind of marred the name fundamentalism forever and that any sort of organizational unity among religious conservatives in the future would have to be based on a more open-minded, positive approach toward modernism. This group was responsible for the founding of the National Association of Evangelicals in April of 1942. And from that movement, we get the rise of guys like Carl Henry. You get the birth of Fuller Theological Seminary, the first seminary in the nation to really identify with the, uh, uh, the name evangelical in that new sense. This is also when Christianity Today was created with the express purpose of spreading these evangelical resources as an alternative not only to modernism, but also to the extreme kind of vitriolic language of fundamentalism. We'll talk about evangelicalism in in particular uh, next month, but it was seen as this sort of different approach to conservatism, uh, to conservatism marked by this fresh, non-polemical feel. Right? The, the goal of evangelicalism was to put the fun back in fundamentalism. 
So these churches, these seminaries in the 40s and in the 50s could fall into one of three camps. If you're a Christian in the 40s or 50s, you could fall into one of three camps. You could be a fundamentalist, you could be a modernist, or you could be an evangelical. All right? And generally, if you fill into one of those camps, you didn't want to be identified with any of the other uh, the camps. All right? and the difference between fundamentalism and evangelicalism didn't lie uh, in your theological convictions in general, but whether or not you believed in ecclesiastical separation and this aggressive, polemical approach to modernism. So around this time, fundamentalism begins to be noted for its negativity, for its legalism, for its anti-intellectualism, for less concern for social action. Any sort of call out for social action is seen as capitulating to the social gospel. It was also around this time that Billy Graham was ascending in American culture. And Billy Graham becomes actually a litmus test for the split between fundamentalism and Uh, evangelicalism. If you ask someone's opinion of Billy Graham, it would often betray which camp they fit into. Self-identified fundamentalists would typically say that Graham's cooperation with mainliners, we'll talk about what mainline denominations are next uh, in a couple of weeks, Uh, but they said that Graham's cooperation with mainliners and with Catholics was this sort of fatal compromise of the gospel. In fact, in 1966, Bob Jones Jr., who was a friend of Graham's, He said that Graham was, quote, doing more harm to the cause of Jesus Christ than any living man. Why? Because he was cooperating with Catholics and he was cooperating with with mainliners and so forth. At this time, some even began to think of a fundamentalist as, quote, one who was opposed to Billy Graham. That's how you knew. If you're a fundamentalist, you are, quote, opposed to Billy Graham, including guys like Bob Jones and John Rice, both of whom were formerly friends of Graham, who eventually repudiated him and attacked him vigorously for his uh, cooperation with other uh, movements. They thought that any sort of ecumenical cooperation with denominations or groups outside of fundamentalists themselves was a form of compromise. So you see this fracturing of fundamentalism, which brings us to the fourth and final stage of the movement. That's a separatist phase. That's roughly from the 60s to the present. This is really the period in which the self-designation of fundamentalism for someone to call themselves a fundamentalist means that they are a Protestant who believes that they should remove themselves from mainstream American culture and religion. So by this point, the fundamentalist has two enemies. Their two enemies are modernists and guess who else? Evangelicals. So at this point, the fundamentalist says we have two enemies— Modernists and evangelicals. Bob Jones uh, uh, Sr., could be junior, but I think it's senior. He said, I'll tell you what an evangelical is. It's someone who says to a liberal, I'll call you a Christian if you call me a scholar. This is when fundamentalism begins to be defined not primarily by what it's for, historic orthodoxy, but rather what it's against. Not only is it against modernity and evolution and things like that, it's also against Billy Graham. It's against evangelicalism in general. It's against, quote, worldly amusements such as playing cards and dancing and going to movies and alcohol. It was thought that the only way to kind of maintain a pure church is to remain separate from anything that might corrupt it, even if that means completely separating from fellow Christians simply because they weren't stringent enough about the rules that they follow. So you see in in fundamentalism this idea of kind of disengaging from the world and from culture. No longer are commands about not loving the world interpreted as saying uh, to to simply stay away from sin, 
which is what it means in the Bible, but is refraining from non-sinful worldly things. And the definition of what was worldly begins to grow and grow in this time. So throughout most of the 70s, you see this increasing suspicion against anyone with sideburns or long hair or beards or bell-bottom pants or boots or wire-rimmed glasses or silk shirts or anything that's associated with uh, worldly culture. Even today, this sort of legalistic view of fundamentalism persists. For example, I have a buddy. He attended a school called Pensacola uh, Christian College. All right, and whenever uh, I was in seminary, we had to. There was a certain dress code you had to wear, business casual, uh, to go to class. But for him, in uh, in his undergraduate, you had to wear that on campus anywhere. If you're going to the gym, you couldn't just wear your gym outfit while you you know ran to the gym or whatever it might be. You had to change at the gym. Uh, to this day, you can go online and you can see their code of conduct, including very specific instructions about just about everything. For example, what music can you listen to? This is on their website. You can go and see that uh, today, assuming they didn't change it last night. Whether or not the lyrics are Christian, music and the style of contemporary Christian, country, jazz, rock, rap, R&B, or pop is prohibited and may not be in a student's possession or used on or off campus. Even if it's, quote, Christian music, If it's in a style that's perceived as worldly, you can't listen to it, even off campus. What movies can you watch? When visiting homes off campus, students may watch movies rated G or PG. However, ratings of PG-13, R, or X are prohibited. All right, I think we can all agree on the X rating, but but not letting college students watch something that's PG-13, that seems a bit extreme. What about interaction with the opposite sex? One of my favorite guidelines as it relates to that is the fact that they have a men's stairwell, and they have a women's stairwell. They have a men's elevator and a women's elevator. All right, ne'er the two shall meet. All right, because that's bad stuff happens on stairwells, and so that's kind of the that's the image though of modern fundamentalism. Right, it's marked not primarily by doctrinal conservatism, but rather by this moralism, by legalism. Now, once fundamentalism had split into these two factions, those who wished to retain the name, and those who migrated over to evangelicalism. Fundamentalism began to lose influence in American culture. It became a less, less a source of political or social power, and it became more an object of ridicule. It was the Ned Flanders, the Toby Flinderson of the American church. But it still exists. There are actually fundamentalist churches everywhere, including a couple here in McKinney. So how can you spot a fundamentalist church? Well, it's kind of like a vegetarian or a crossfitter, right? They'll tell you. Soon enough, you don't have to ask. But as far as some signs, how do you know if a church is kind of not just evangelical but actually fundamentalist? Here are a few different signs. Number one, if a church or preacher stresses that they are King James only, they're probably fundamentalists. Fundamentalists tend to stress the King James Version. They think that any other translations have been corrupted by modern culture, um, even though Objectively, the King James is not actually the best translate, uh, translation. We have an entire lesson on Bible translations uh, on that if you want to listen to it. Not all fundamentalist churches are King James only, but many are, and that's a pretty good uh, sign. Um, number two, they tend to be dispensational. Not all or even most dispensationalists are fundamentalists, but most fundamentalists are dispensational. Along with this, there's this strong emphasis on a literal reading of Scripture, by which we don't mean that we believe the Bible, but rather that they reject figurative 
typological interpretations of the Bible. Number three, they tend to define themselves by what they're against. Right? So sometimes you'll find on a website of a church a really strong stance regarding culture on topics like alcohol or Hollywood or something like that. So the distinguishing characteristic of fundamentalism today is not doctrine. After all, most evangelicals ascribe to the same fundamentals. Instead, the distinguishing characteristic of fundamentalism today is the attitude behind the defense of doctrine. And perhaps, uh, in particular, that it's driven uh, by fear. It's driven by anger. It's not driven by love or faith. And then a fourth sign that is, uh, is pretty typical of fundamentalism today is authoritarian and abusive leadership. There used to be a, a Twitter user who just posted clips of independent fundamentalist Baptist preachers. Many of them, uh, it's shocking, but many of them have uh, clips of the preacher just looking out into the congregation and he'll make a point about pornography, and he'll just point to someone and say, yeah, Bob, you confessed pornography use the other day to me, or something like that, just calling out people's sins there in, uh, in the congregations. One of the distinctives of the fundamentalist movement is that it's always been led by these people who kind of uh, almost are seen as demigods within, uh, within the sphere, right? whether it's within a denomination or a church or a seminary or something like that. So you can see that with the way that some people have reverenced over time Bob Jones or Bill Gothard or Jerry Falwell or something like that. So where you find a combination of all of these elements, uh, you, uh, the chances are you found a fundamentalist church. Is that all bad? Is fundamentalist all bad? No, there are certainly some pros Especially as we look at the history of the movement, there are a number of positives. First, in a time in which everyone was capitulating to these prevailing philosophical, theological presuppositions of the day, the fundamentalists stood firm for the truth. They kind of swam against the tide, even though doing so uh, cost them. Second, a positive approach of the of fundamentalism, uh, especially in the early days, was that they were generally interdenominational. They stress partnership beyond these uh, simple denominational affiliations. And third, they remained passionate for missions and evangelism. Those are some of the pros. What about the cons? Especially in the latter phases of the movement, there are a number of critiques. Number one, they're marked by separatism. They develop this sort of siege mentality. By the way, this is partly why dispensational theology was so popular within fundamentalism. Right. According to dispensational theology, the world just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to rapture the church before things get too bad. So we don't have to worry about things getting too bad as the church because Jesus is going to rapture us. So fundamentalism generally just took this posture of saying, we'll just circle the wagons while we wait for Jesus to return. That's one of the cons. Second, I think that any Christian movement that is known primarily for bitterness and, and pessimism, uh, pessimism as instinctive is probably a bad thing, but that's exactly what fundamentalism is. They're very much reactionary. They're very much antagonistic. They're known for demonizing their opponents. Unfortunately, even opponents who share the name of Christian, that's one of the, the weaknesses. A third con of the movement, we've touched on this a number of times, but uh, again, the connection to moralism and legalism. Not necessarily the type of legalism that says, I'm justified by my obedience, but rather the type that simply says, I'm going to add a rule to God's word. Theological liberalism takes stuff out of the Bible 
extreme conservatism to put stuff into the Bible. All right? Both of them are rejecting uh, the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture. And along with that movement in fundamentalism comes this very guilt-centered view of sanctification rather than an emphasis on, uh, on the gospel and on grace and so forth. Fourth, there is also a theological reductionism that takes place in fundamentalism. For, uh, for example, I mentioned before, it's a bit strange that the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't one of the, quote, fundamentals. Most fundamentalist churches today, if you go and you look at their uh, website, they have very superficial, anemic statements of faith. Rather than uh, ascribing to historic confessions, there's this rejection of confessions and creeds and those kinds of things. There is this growth of the idea, no creed but the Bible. Uh, in fact, m- many fundamentalists are, are kind of highly averse to theology. They're highly averse to education. And then lastly, related to the previous point, there tends to be rampant anti-intellectualism. All right, I watched a clip from a pastor this past week from one of those independent fundamentalist Baptist churches. And uh, he mentions how he hates studying. He says, if I could preach without studying, I would. So the goal for him isn't personal enrichment uh, that's found in studying. The goal for him is performance, the performative act of preaching. So studying is merely a means to some sort of other end, which is what he gets to do on stage. That kind of anti-intellectualism is abundant among fundamentalism. There's this emphasis on the heart to the neglect of the head. So what are the lasting effects of fundamentalism? We'll end with this. Number one, the fragmentation of Protestantism. No longer do you just have Baptists and Presbyterians, but you have independent fundamentalist Baptists and you have evangelical Baptists. As historian uh, Martin Marty says, what had come of the conflict of the 20s was a deeply, permanently divided Protestantism. Second thing is the erosion of cultural influence. Uh, if you uh, if you remember back in I don't remember when it was but there was uh, late seventies early eighties or something like that Time magazine said it's the year of the evangelicals. Notice Time magazine has never said it's the year of the fundamentals or fundamentalists or something like that. Why not? Because they tend to lose their cultural uh, influence. All right, they have no significant role because they've largely kind of withdrawn themselves from cultural engagement. There was a stain on the term fundamentalism that, that persists to this very day, which is why we tend to use the word in a negative way, whether applied to Christians or to other religions. To be fundamentalist is seen in our culture as to be angry, to be negative, to be mean-spirited, and so forth. And then third, as a lasting effect of fundamentalism, there is this distortion of Christian self-understanding. In particular, there is this fear of being mislabeled. So some feared the label of being uh, uh, the label fundamentalist that they kind of swung the pun- pendulum and kind of capitulated again uh, a bit to modernism. Others kind of had the opposite reaction. They were so afraid of being called a liberal that they swung the pendulum too far towards, uh, um, I don't remember which one I said, so whatever the opposite of that uh, is. So others had this sort of opposite reaction. I think this fear-mongering persists even to today where there is this sort of fear that drives even evangelicals, where we hear one concerning thing from a pastor. Tim Keller says this, and so we reject everything that he's said, or everything that he's written. Or John Piper said this, and so we reject everything that he said, or everything that he's written. Instantly throw him under the bus the same way that fundamentalists did to uh, guys like Billy Graham, of all people. So that's a bit about fundamentalism. Let's pray.
and then uh, we will maybe have time for one or two questions. Father, we're grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for um, some of the benefits of fundamentalism. That in a uh, in a season where the church was capitulating to uh, anti-Christian um, uh, philosophical presuppositions, that there were a group of men who were willing to uh, stake their lives and their reputations upon uh, the truth of your word. And so I pray that we might um, we might imitate them in their uh, commitment to truth, but we might not imitate uh, the later perversion and distortion of that movement that would. Uh, cause us to separate from the world and to add to scripture and all those kinds of things. And so pray that you would bless us and help us to be faithful in Christ's name. Amen.